0: Welcome to New Books Network. I am Sharika Crawford, your host. Today I'm with Dr. Vanessa Monger. She's an independent scholar in the United Kingdom, and we're here to discuss her newest book, Rogue Revolutionaries: The Fight for Legitimacy in the Greater Caribbean, published by the University of Pennsylvania in 2020. Vanessa, welcome to New Books Network.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for agreeing to do the interview.
1: Well, thank you for inviting me. Um, I'm a fan of the New Books Network, and especially the New Books in Caribbean Studies and African American Studies series. You're all doing an amazing work, so it's really a uh, privilege to be you know, interviewed by you today.
0: Vanessa, I want us to begin with you sharing a bit about your intellectual and professional background. How did you end up becoming a historian?
1: I actually ended up becoming a historian a bit by chance. So I did my undergrad studies in France uh, with uh, a study exchange program in the U.S. And I did two BAs at the same time, which I would not recommend um, for people to do. One was in history and one was in English, what we call American studies. Um, And so I worked on very, very different topics. Then I took some time off. And especially after my time uh, studying for a year in the U.S. and UCLA, I became really interested in uh, U.S. history and especially doing U.S. history in the U.S. and in English. Um, So I took some time off and then I applied for a Ph.D. program in the United States and I received funding for that. And um, that's really kind of what I started to specialize in both history and what I thought was going to be U.S. history, but ended up being more Atlantic World uh, history. And I think I came to the PhD program, and then to you know um, to eventually became a dissertation in the book with this interdisciplinary approach. Because, like I said, like I, you know, I did a BA in both English and history, and with this also um, almost international background, um, especially with the linguistic skills that I think really, really helped me. Develop whatever, like a unique take on, you know, on Atlantic world history. So that's kind of like a bit of my intellectual and professional background. So I really also, like my historical actors, I kind of really crossed uh, national borders as I developed and grew as a historian. So it really helped me understand them a bit better.
0: Well, how did you come across these polygod of men who sought to launch revolutions across the greater Caribbean?
1: So when I entered the PhD program, I wanted to work on New Orleans. Uh, There was an interest that was partly personal, having been so obsessed with Anne Rice's interview with the vampire, the book, uh, when I was younger, but also practical, since I know English, uh, French and Spanish. That was really the perfect combination of languages um, to study the city in the 18th and 19th century. Um, I also realized when I went to grad school that this combination of languages was quite unusual uh, for U.S. historians, um, and even earlier U.S. Americans who mostly know English, which is, was very different coming from Europe, or at least France, where most people learn foreign languages at school. In addition, they often uh, also speak other languages at home with their families. But um, in any case, I realized that knowing one, more than one language could be an asset. Especially with a history of New Orleans, and so I wanted to study free people of color or gens de couleur libre um, from the Spanish period in the late 18th century, and then those co- those who came uh, from Haiti in the early 19th century. And when I read uh, Dr. Karen bells wonderful book, uh, "Revolution, Romanticism, and the Afro- Creole Protest Tradition in Louisiana," and also um, her great digital humanities, humanities project um, in motion, the African-American migration experience. I came across a reference to a, um, to a colonel, uh, Joseph Safari, who emigrated from Saint-Domingue, Haiti, and who fought in the Battle of New Orleans in the War of 1812. And there was a reference that uh, this man, uh, Savary, had participated in the Spanish-American independence in Texas. And I was like, oh, well, that's an interesting, you know, interesting trajectory. So I was really intrigued, and I did more research, and I found out that Savary was not alone, that there were more immigrants from Saint-Domingue, um, Haiti, who participated in various movements to overthrow the Spanish empire in the Gulf Coast and in the greater Caribbean. Um, And that these immigrants also collaborated with a network of men of other nationalities, like men who came from France, from metropolitan France, from the French colony of Guadeloupe, from Spain, uh, from Italy, from the US. And that some of them did not just participate in these movements, they didn't just play supporting roles but they attempted to overthrow colonial monarchy, to ignite revolutions, and to create their own countries, their own republics, wherever they went. Um, And so I began to trace these itinerant revolutionaries who traveled back and forth across the Atlantic and across across the Americas, and I set up a database of names to see where and when they would pop up next uh, it was very like to be continued. Uh, it was a very ad hoc methodology at first, and then I realized that this mobility fueled and what I think is an innovative political philosophy, and also helps us move away from the way we understand the transition um, in the late 18th to early 19th century for empires to nation and territory-bound nation states. And uh, the the rogue revolutionaries I study in the book and their project. Confound, I think, what we think about what we think we know about both the formation and states and the creation of racial and national identities. They show that a much more cosmopolitan, messy, multiracial, and contested past has to be into taken into account if we want to understand this time period. Um, and uh, in short, these relatively minor historical actors really help me tackle this. Old age question: um, Under which circumstances overthrowing a government was acceptable? And really, like, who had the right to you know uh, to do so? Who in short, like, who possessed the right of revolution?
0: Well, that theme um, is definitely central, um, you know. As I read your book, and and in fact, in rogue revolutionaries. You know, your focus on the interconnectedness of these several kind of revolutionary plots across the Atlantic world were mostly attempted and not really achieved. And you also note that the consequences of these unsuccessful revolution um, revolutions um, were the consolidation of what you might think of as a supranational anti-radical state power. I wanted to hear you talk a little bit more about why you thought it was important for historians and scholars to study even these examples of failed state projects.
1: Yes, well, I think sometimes the best way to understand how world came into existence is to look at it from the outside, actually what didn't become part of it. And I think as historians, we tend to focus on defining moments, on clear instances uh, of world-changing moments, of clear turning points. Uh, But in the early 19th century, many entities throughout the Atlantic world, throughout the Americas, were, quote-unquote, failed projects. Their existence was contested. They only lasted a few years. Uh, At the same time, European imperialism remained a strong presence in the Americas, I think it's uh, often too easily discounted. So I think we need a more expensive definition of revolution that includes various attempts to overthrow regimes to create a new order. And the revolutionary plots in the book, is kind of ghastly revolution, ghastly states did not survive long. Some of them did not even manage to get very far. Um, but uh, by, by placing them at the center of the story, Uh, We can peer back the classification of permanent and longer lasting states to reveal, I think, two things. Um, The first, like that, these men might not have interpreted the fleeting or evanescent nature of their political project as failures. Um, You know, failure was almost the rule in the world they lived in, it was the rule of their time. So it was just so many entities that rose and fell at the time. Um, sometimes revolutions funded um, independent nation states whose name we recognize today or that still exist. Most often they did not. Um, so we kind of have to take these men's attempt to make revolution a universal right seriously. They really claim revolution as a universal right and they embedded this right within a cosmopolitan vision of the world and anchored it into Republican ideals of uh, liberty and equality. And uh, the second thing I think kind of like these failed st- revolutions or failed state projects help us understand is how this universal or universalized right of revolution evolved in tension with a burgeoning international system. Um, these men, in a way, as a reaction created the need to restrict or try to restrict this right of revolution. Uh, and in the book, I of also look like at the sorting out process that led to the, consil- the consolidation of national state powers that decided that some revolutions were rich- righteous, like some revolutions were okay, they were legitimate, they led to new countries that kind of you know, lasted a bit, uh, but, and they also decided some were not. Um, and a few European and American powers kind of began to recognize each other as part of the same group, and they decided who they would extend recognition and legitimacy to. And here was really influenced by postcolonial scholarship in uh, political science and international relations that shows, that impacts of uh, the work that goes into the label of, you know, fair state in the contemporary period in, you know, in uh, today's time. And really kind of like ask us to, um, to unpack these Western central norms of state development um, and so I really wanted to look at this moment where the right of revolution is seen as being taken over by outlaws, by you know pirates, by thugs. Um, it's really this idea that, you know, the right of revolution had gone rogue. Uh, and so the international community has to create as a reaction like new protocols for recognizing and defining sovereignty and legitimacy. Um, and, you know, I kind of see this, you know, uh, right of revolution of these rogue revolutionaries involving intention with hardening exclusive nationalisms that turned these projects into now largely forgotten uh, political possibilities. So really like try to track these moments where you know these revolutionaries sought recognition uh, but failed. And to you know, and I think this you know this moment demonstrate that the this time period that we often associate with the rise of the nation states, right? Like if you open any history book, it's kind of you know uh, the progression that we see in the Atlantic world. It was also the rise of failed revolutions and ephemeral states. It's really this moment where legitimacy is up to grabs, and a wide range of individuals claimed it, uh, and many entities were ev- evanescent at the time. And I think. Um, they shouldn't be put in the footnotes of you know of history. I think we really have to explore the multiple forms revolutionaries can take, and how these actions and ideologies of you know, uh, often forgotten political actors uh, initiated significant changes. Because really, you know, to reiter- reiterate my point, <laughs> the Americas were really littered with the names of would-be independent states and republics, it's kind of like freelance efforts to found new states. Um, I'm just taking them seriously. And, you know, really, like, it's, you see the, the echo with today's world, where the world is covered with countries that are labeled failed, or I mean, now they are calling them fragile states, because you know, the, the term failed is so fraught, um, who have not received diplomatic recognition. They are not part of the family of nations, to use a 18th, 19th century term. But they are there. They're everywhere. Um, And so, I really also wanted to kind of uncover the genealogy of this course, that how certain political projects, how certain political actors were constructed as deviation from the norms, as illegitimate, as failure, and often this is done at the time, but also retrospectively. So it's really kind of like to um, to kind of like question whether our understanding of successful revolutions of successful states is not deeply flawed. And I'm trying to do that by going back to this moment in time where people throughout the Americas uh, were really igniting revolutions and funding new states and republics. It's really this moment where, like, you know, who's to say who's legitimate and you know uh, which are not? Like, who's to say which one is going to survive? Um, and, you know, it's really tried to reestablish the contingency of this moment, but also the lasting effect that it had on the way we understand these, you know, these processes, and especially our definition of you know, failure and success and legitimacy that I think we kind of have inherited to this day.
0: Hmm. I think you do this um, really effectively um, in the book. And I think it has to do with the structure by which um, you organized um, the cases. You have these um, kind of five, you know, moments, if you will, or, or examples that you choose to tell, not chronologically, but across specific themes. Um, and sometimes they they even overlapped, um, in part because your historical figures, um, they enter and exit across the five chapters. And that was one aspect of your study that I particularly enjoyed. Um being introduced to, or sometimes reintroduced to, these itinerant Atlantic figures and their revolutionary escapades that I have um, was familiar with or unfamiliar with. And one such figure was um, Louis Michel Auri, and I was hoping that you might spend some time talking about um, Auri, who he was, and, and how he maybe in particular helped you to tease out these ideas of the interconnectedness of these multiple revolutions, and and what you've stated about the benefits of studying these these attempted, um, you know, efforts to to launch revolution in the Caribbean.
1: Yes, thanks. I think uh, Louis Michelot is probably the most famous uh, figure in the book. And actually, um, I've been surprised. Maybe something we can talk about how uh, his memory, still lasting spirit in Providencia. I think you're more familiar with, um, which I didn't, you know, anticipate. But um, yeah, yeah. To no, sorry. To um, to walk back a little bit. So the book kind of covers the period roughly between 1780 to 1840, which is this period of tremendous social, economic, and political change. And so by emphasizing themes like um, like sovereignty, statehood, communication, memory. I kind of wanted to emphasize shared problems and topics um, that appear in many places and times. Like the book is a snapshot on one region, uh, the Greater Caribbean, and one set of actors, these rogue revolutionaries, that can hopefully open up conversations uh, among national histories and historiographies that have avoided dialogue were are dealing with the same issues. So I'm kind of hoping that you do not have to be an expert on Caribbean history or even American or Atlantic world history to read this book. And I kind of hope that what I'm writing about and what I found will sound familiar to people working, for example, in South Asia, on West Africa or Eastern Europe. Um, So yes, so to return to these itinerant figures and the revolutionary escapades, for me, like it was also a strategy in terms of writing the book um, to try to make sense of these connections of the de- multiple revolutions and multiple uh, regional histories, and you know also these big questions like the rise of state power of the international system. So my decision was really to make this a human story and to study these connections and these big historical developments through people, through kind of diplomacy from below, and. Um, and yet, someone like uh, like michel Chello is really perfect for doing that. He really represents or really epitomizes the kind of revolutionary and state-making entrepreneur of the book. Um, so, he was born near Paris. Uh, he lost his parents a eight, at, at, at a young age, and so to make a living, he joined the French Navy during the Revolution. Uh, as a sailor, and that took him to the West Indies, and he actually never saw his beloved sister who stayed in Paris ever again, although they maintained a uh, really warm and loving correspondence throughout, you know, uh, throughout his life. And so, oh, he then deserts the French Navy uh, where he's stationed in the West Indies, and so around the time that Napoleon comes into power, Uh, He makes money with smuggling activities, you know, around especially the United States. He becomes captain of his own ships. And then his career really blooms or really takes off when Napoleon uh, invades the Spanish Peninsula in 1808, triggering a power power vacuum in the Spanish Empire and the beginning of independence movements in Spanish America. So Ori, like many other foreigners in the region, joins the Republic of Cartagena on the coast of Colombia that existed between 1811 and 1815 that has been recently studied by Perez Morales in No uh, Limits to way. I think you interviewed him. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, the Republic of Cartagena, which was very small at the time, used privateers to gain uh, recognition with other powers and also to build up their navy. And they really recruited foreigners to to become this privateer navy for them, privateer army. Um, So Ori is just part of them. He actually meets a lot of the characters that you see again in the book, Uh, really this kind of like network of people. Uh, Then Ori evacuates to Haiti when the Spanish uh, royalist troops take over Catarina, take over the poor city of Catarina. There he clashes with Simon Bolivar, who at the time emerges as the leader of the independence movement. And uh, that's really when his ambitions are unleashed. And that's really when he became his more or less, actually more than less, independent state-making career. Uh, He establishes autonomous government in uh, Galveston Island, which is off the coast of Texas, on Amelia Island, which is off the coast of Florida. Uh, There he proclaims a republic that is soon defeated by U.S. forces, and then on Providencia Island, Um, that was part of Colombia at the time that, you know, I think you're more familiar than I am, especially for the later period. And from uh, Providencia, he launches also two liberation attacks against Spanish Honduras, which don't really work out. Um, Then when he dies in 1821, he's replaced at the head of Providencia by Sever Courtois, who's originally from Saint-Domingue, who faces strong opposition. Uh, Notably because he's of African descent and he's accused of fomenting race wars, which was quite common at the time for uh, um ambitious men of you know um of African descent who were you know uh, military leaders so courtois decides to join Providencia to the Republic of Colombia um and then soon enough Toqua takes off again and try to export revolution to cuba uh, but uh, but yeah to go back to Ori, I think Ori really represents. This alternative vision of political future um, I talk about in the book is like I really wanted to spend more time uh, on these odd moments, this almost parenthesis, between the time, for example, where Florida and Providencia go from Spanish hands, from the hands of the Spanish Empire, to republics like the United States and Colombia. And really, Ori and the government he set up um, in, you know, uh, in these places, can kind I of really complicate this transition from empire to no, to republics? Um, and really, these parentheses were actually moments where Ori developed governments that could and actually did pose as legitimate, even for a very short time. And uh, and again, it's really about taking these attempts seriously. And so Ori and Courtois are quite keen to develop attributes of what I call attributes of sovereignty. They no longer receive letters of marks or privateering commissions from Latin, Latin American uh, agents. They actually make them, they print them, they issue them to their own ships. Um, and then, you know, so that the ships can attack Spanish ships, Spanish vessels, bring them to their government where they had set up admiralty courts and judges so that, you know, uh, these um, seizures are actually, you know, uh, judged in this you know, kind of like autonomous government. Uh, Their merchandises are seized, including enslaved Africans, and, you know, to kind of found these revolutionary dreams. And uh, men like Ori come up with their own laws. They sometimes organize elections. They reach out to other governments like Haiti and Jamaica. They build accommodation. They build markets. They really kind of set up their own countries. And they constantly try to recruit new people to replenish their ranks. And they promise that their governments... Are going to be open, are open to all. It's really this cosmopolitan feature that is a recurring feature of all the project, projects I look at in the book. It's really these revolutions are premised on the idea of equal rights for all, regardless of birthplace, regardless of race, regardless of religion. That's really the cornerstone of this political project, is this idea of liberty and equality. Uh, and, and all these initiatives. I have to say, do convince some people, like some people do follow him and support him, but they kind of hit a brick wall, if you will, with others. Um, the US government, as well as the Spanish, uh, as well as Spanish-American government, especially Bolivar, uh, who's at the head of Gran Colombia, Bolivar really hates Ori, do not recognize Ori as legitimate. He's uh, portrayed as a rabble rouser. He's an annoyance. Um, and... Uh, But yet, he really shows also how these all the revolutions in the Atlantic War are interconnected. Like he borrows ideas from the French Revolution, really this idea of a world revolution. And he really likes, for example, the tree of liberty image, the image that he uses again and again. Uh, He borrows ideas from the US a little bit. uh, he borrows ideas from this short-lived Republic of Cartagena, and especially this idea of privateering as a tool of sovereignty and to attract, you know, uh, multinational forces. He borrows ideas from Haiti, and especially the idea of asylum, this idea of opening the country to anyone oppressed or who feels oppressed. So, Ori, like, you know, uh, other revolutionaries that uh, study in the book, really do kind of like cosmopolitan bricolage. They kind of create this Frankenstein monster or this golem. They really interpret ideas from other revolution and really kind of adapt, adapt them to suit their own quest for personal and economic prestige. And um, furthermore, the reaction of other governments to all projects whether it's the United States or Gran Colombia, really show, I think, also how the international system of a family of nations slowly comes into existence. Like they refuse to recognize him and others as equal. He's a thug. He's an outlaw that has to be squashed. And with him, is also squashed this alternative vision of a cosmopolitan future. And by casting Ori and um, other revolutionaries like him aside, by not extending recognition to them, these other countries consolidate, consolidate and nationalize their own histories. Um, and it's really during this phase of experimentation that these countries edged out their competitors, right? They kind of edged out these itinerant, mobile, cosmo- and cosmopolitan and, inter- and multiracial competitors, or they kind of turned them into curiosities, into Picaresque pirates almost. And so they kind of do that in several ways. Uh, One way is to try to regulate privateering more strictly or to stamp it out altogether. Another is to regulate the right of revolution, it's kind of to put an end to it. Like, you know, um, it has kind of gone uh, too far. Um, You know, we kind of have to limit who can actually proclaim a revolution and who can, you know, proclaim their own states. So I think um, that really reveals the emergence of the sovereign nation-states as a contingent outcome of these anti-colonial decolonization struggles. It could have gone in in different directions. Um, And the more real the borders of these states became, the greater the tension between them and the cosmopolitan cosmopolitan revolutionary ideas became. became. Uh, But it wasn't preordained. Um, The success of certain projects uh, was really contingent and it was almost like you know uh throwing cards on a you know uh, on a table and see what comes out it's really like no one could really predict what was going to prevail what was going to you know uh succeed and what was was not it was really you know i think a time of opportunities and possibilities for many people
0: it seems to me that um this kind of sharing of um radical Um, and revolutionary ideas that are circulating throughout the Caribbean, um, is really predicated on um, these communication circuits, which you um, devote a chapter in your book about, both print and even oral um, communication, such as rumors. It made me think a bit about um, Cristina Soriano's book, Tides of Revolution, Information Insurgencies, and the Crisis of Colonial Rule in Venezuela, um, whom I've interviewed um, last year. And I thought that you might want to speak to the ways in which um, print um, served to stimulate um, the emergence of this multilingual, multiracial itinerant kind of revolutionary, um, you know, polygod of people um, launching these revolutions, attempting to create these new states based on this universal idea of equality for all.
1: Yes. So uh, when I started to study these Don Quixote figures uh, who are, you know, um, kind of like are always fighting, like they're not fighting windmills, but they are fighting no tyranny and European imperialism, right? They're like night errants. Um so when I went into the archives, I kind of expecting them to be sly, to be silent, to try to fly under the radar of, of authorities, right? Because you know they were seen as doing illegal activities. And I was wrong. <laughs> like really like Don Quixote, they were loud. They really wanted to be heard. And in order to be heard, they really turned to uh, one of the most powerful weapons at our disposal, which was the printing press, and many scholars, uh, including Cristina Soriano, have worked on the spread of literacy of newspapers at the time. And I can like, I really look at the advertising campaigns really of these revolutionary expeditions, um, who travel with portable printing presses or portable lithographic plates that you know were, were taken across sea and land. And you know, with itinerant revolutionaries, you had itinerant presses right like we uh, tried to spread the contagion of revolution. um these men really used these uh, printing presses to print you know privateer commissions, pamphlets, newspapers, and then they circulated this you know um this propaganda or this advertising campaign both to the local population you know again to try to recruit support but also to newspaper editors across the Atlantic world. And then these editors translated, but also edited this propaganda. So it's really, you know, this kind of like really like almost a global circulation of information. Um, and like the men who printed them, the words, images, and metaphors really travel back and forth across uh, around the Atlantic world. And so this printed trail of clues uh, helped me get a better sense of their political and intellectual production has really tried to understand this complex uh, ideology that emerged from the experiences in various places. So Again, this idea of bricolage, right? Of um, of the way they kind of borrowed and reinterpreted different ideas and influences and came up with something new. Uh, They articulated an ideal of what I call cosmopolitan patriotism, really this idea that all human human beings belong to a single community while trying to establish a new political order uh, where everyone would have a place. So it's a really multilingual uh, production. Um, it's mostly French, English, and Spanish, and it in, and on top of that, you have these multilingual networks of translators, editors, and also carriers because these prints were, you know, carried over, you know, uh, say like locally and uh, across the Americas and the Atlantic world. Um, so it's this proliferation of information sharing information-sharing networks that Soriano has studied so well. It's really the world of print, this moving, in my case, moving word of print that co- coexisted with the world of whispers of rumours flying back and forth. Um, they really kind like of build on, on each other. It's almost like a c- cacophony. Um, and I think it would be interesting to compare Soriano's interpretation of communication circuits, uh, especially around uh, revolutionary conspiracies like the one in uh, Laguera, that she really anchored in the vivid um, local tapestry of Venezuela, like coastal Venezuela, and to compare her uh, local lands with a more um, transatlantic or trans-American lands that, you know, that I tried to develop, where well, you kind of see that what happened in Venezuela, or especially coastal Caribbean Venezuela, was connected to what happened in, you know, um, in Guadeloupe, to what happened in metropolitan France, in the US, also in England, is we try to see these connected dynamics that you know um, that you see with this you know very kind of like um, ephemeral and you know multilingual prints and often because these printing presses were not you know um, could not produce extensive literature these ideas have to, learn to be communicated in pretty much like a one page format so I think it also shapes the you know the message we were trying to to come across were, you know, usually centered on these key ideas, keywords, and key images. Uh, but again, these images were interpreted differently um, according also to the audiences. I think something I also go um, a bit into the book is that it's really a competition. It was like a marketplace of ideas because the Spanish crown really picked up, uh, very quickly picked up on what was happening. And especially in the US, the Spanish um, consular authorities tried to set up their counter print. Uh, advertising campaigns to try to, you know, um, to counteract this, you know, pro-independence movement or pro-independence prints that you see. So it's really, you know, uh, this competition of, especially people in the Caribbean are almost like swamps <laughs> with these prints that are coming over. It's like, no, yes, Spanish round, no Spanish round, yes, liberty, no liberty. And they're, you know, really trying to also navigate what, you know, what system or what political form of government they want to you know to support so it's really this kind of like you know almost yeah like cacophony and competition that you know i really want to study in the book
0: i love the way you described i think a uh, coexistence um through words by print and words by whispers. I'll I'll have to definitely um, integrate that in my (laughs) lectures when I return to class, it's awesome. Um, I I wanted to get back this idea that you had referenced earlier saying that um, one of the um, main ideas that unites all of these um, attempts at revolution was the idea of equality for all. And in one of your chapters, um, you actually complicate that political project of equality for all, and show that it's not always linked up to the the, the end of slavery or calls to end slavery. And here I'm thinking of um, Joseph Savary, who you who you referenced earlier, who had participated um, um, in as a as a Sand in, in the American Revolution, and I'm. Thinking of Guillaume, both of whom are free men of color from the Isle of Saint-Domingue. Could you tell us a little bit about that kind of um, political contest between um, having equality for all and how it complicates efforts to end (laughs) slavery and who these men were and and kind of what they were seeking um, in terms of their political and revolutionary projects? And were they successful?
1: Um, Yes. Uh, So uh, I have to say, like, all of the revolutionary projects I look at in the book were actually funded or more or less funded by slave trading, by, you know, um, seizing Spanish ships, um, taking, you know, enslaved Africans from their holes and, you know, selling them. What I found, you know, interesting by looking at how Savary and Guillaume negotiated this, you know, uh, what I guess we see as a contradiction between equality and slavery is that because we were both from Saint-Domingue, Um, from, you know, what uh, became, you know, Haiti, Um, and um, I guess because they left the island during the revolution that eventually led to the, you know, uh, to the rise of the independent country of Haiti, and so while we think of the Haitian revolution, we think, you know, the Haitian revolution, like, overthrew white supremacy, overthrew European colonialism, it overthrew slavery. And with Guillaume, they embraced the first two wholeheartedly, right? Like they're down with the white supremacy thing, down with European colonialism. But the third one, slavery, was a bit more uh, more complicated. Um, and I think we also have to remember that the Greater Caribbean was a world of opportunities, a you know, world in which countries rose and fell. It was a really highly contingent moment. Uh, that kind of really made balancing risks and opportunities particularly tricky for men of African descent. Like the age of revolution was the age of slavery, it was the age of racism, it was the age of racial hierarchy. Um so really trying to you know, um, see how these two men kind of like negotiated or, or navigated or you know uh, this environment. Um and they were both military men, which I think is really important to understand their, you know, um, their ambitions and the strategies they, really, they wanted equality uh, they wanted to achieve the same rights as, as um, other white men and these right these rights actually included buying and selling other uh, human beings and I think this contradiction so um, so again I, I take them a bit as straw men because you know they came from uh, from Haiti and again this contradiction is so obvious um you know when we think of Haitian revolution versus actual Haitians, Um, But, you know, slave trading was quite, you know, again, it funded all these radical revolutionary projects, but they also show up the centrality of slavery, that even radical thinking men, both of European or of African descent, men who were intimately familiar with Haiti, men who were also familiar or even had participated in the abolitionist project of the French Revolution, uh, starting in uh, 1793, 1794, Um, did not consider emancipation for all. Um, They could not imagine a world without it. And I think it often, I mean, it's difficult to know if they actually, you know, um, in a way believed in slavery, but they believed in the profitability of slavery, especially in the economics of the Caribbean. I think they knew they couldn't have won support if they had promised, you know, um, the end of the slave trade or the end of slavery. But again, you know, it's not that these options didn't exist. Um, you know, some revolutionary projects, very few of them, did include this, via, you know, emancipation. So I just, you know, um, I just f- found that really, you know, interesting to try to unpack what I think we see today as contradictions. By the time, were not contradictions. I mean, these men came from the colonial um, world of Saint Domingue, where you know, a free people of color had owned slaves and uh, enslaved people and had made money um, out of that. Actually, had gained social status uh, through, you know, through slave owning. So it's not really surprising. I guess what's surprising is that because they keep on, like, talking about liberty and equality. And, you know, so I think for us it seems like a contradiction. But I guess, you know, equality also has to be funded. I guess I guess it was kind of like the, you know, kind of like, you know, the means to an end. Um, and slave trading or slavery is just one strategy that these men, um, Savary and Ori, kind of like, Used to promote their quest for you know uh, for recognition and for uh, equality and kind of equality and I, I analyze others um, in the you know uh, in the book, um, but especially for San Domingans uh, or Haitians who participated in many battles in the Greater Caribbean. Uh, we also know that Haiti was the only country to openly assess Simon Bolivar and his movement for independence. Uh, I think we still need to pay more attention to these fighters, or these American freedom fighters, and their own motivations and their own convictions. Um, in the chapter, I also show that other San Domingan exiles made different choices, and some of them actually chose to fight for royalism. Um, I have a scene in which Guillaume, who is one of my you know, uh, revolutionaries, lead an expedition to bring revolution to Honduras. And there he meets um, a Spanish colonel in charge of the forces in Trujillo, Guillermo, himself from Saint-Domingue, and um, the both men had probably left the island around the same time during the revolution. I think Guillermo sided uh, with the Spanish when the Spanish tried to invade uh, Saint-Domingue and then, you know, uh, was moved to Honduras. Um, But Guillermo Guillermo actually, you know, tell the, the revolutionary expedition, you know, like, thanks, but no thanks. And he declared his allegiance, allegiance not so much to the Spanish crown as such, but to the Cadiz constitution, which was this liberal document that had just been adopted, actually very briefly in Spain uh, in 1820, but, you know, was written a bit before. So he's, you know, Guillermo is also very familiar with this, you know, um, political ideas, uh, you know, um, floating around the Atlantic, you know, uh, ocean he decides you know what like i'm just gonna place my bets with a spanish you know monarchy with a spanish empire and especially this liberal moment you know like i think you know i think there's something to gain from that like he decides not to place his bets on republicanism and revolution like like uh Guillaume and Savary do um so it's really to go back to this idea of saviness and um appropriation of key concepts like liberty republican republicanism but also monarchisms and what these concepts actually meant for people of african descent and especially those in the military world who has these very big ambitions to you know um to become kind of like the, you know uh, the leaders of this new order these new worlds obviously we know that these ambitions were not fulfilled and kind of you know i kind of show also how you know men like Guillot and Savary were gradually marginalized in the countries in which they decided to settle. Uh, Savary decided to settle in New Orleans, uh, in Louisiana, in the U.S., and Guillot decides to settle in, on the coast of Colombia. And kind of also showed the book how they negotiated their place in this incre- increasingly hostile environments in both countries. Um, in a way, like what happens when, you know... Um, men who wanted to be founding fathers end up with no nation. Um, and they kind of have to, you know, um, you know it's this moment where not only are the ambitions going kind to of be squashed, but they kind of, you know, uh, really have to negotiate these new racial politics that emerge in these independent republics. And their racial politics are very different from the one they wanted to create. Um, and so, um So, yeah, in a way, they were not really successful, except, I guess, for slavery that actually did continue to make a lot of people uh, wealthy for a really long time. But slave trading is also a a moment where slave trading is under attack uh, by different countries, especially Britain. So um, so slave trading is not really a reputable activity anymore, uh, based on making a lot of people uh, wealthy. And I think it kind of fueled this you know, these ambitions that these men, you know, developed. So, they, you know, I think also these men are really interesting to show this transition between this French colonial world, you know, where slave owning was popular, not popular, but it was present among, you know, uh, people of African descent and this republicanism where you have stricter racial lines.
0: Mm. It made me think um, as you were speaking to the contradictions that we often um, we see historically, but we forget today um, when we think about abolitionism, um, whether studying it in North America or South America, where you can be um, pro the end of slavery, but it didn't necessarily meant that you were committed to racial equality.
1: Oh, yes. Um, Yes, the other way around, they were committed (laughs) to racial equality even though to the end of slavery.
0: Absolutely. So so your your talking of it makes me kind of reminded that this is kind of a a consistent um, contradiction that we see across time and in in different contexts. But I wanted to go back to um, something that you had referenced earlier in in our conversation, but I I think that you bring out very well in the book. Um, And in many ways, you do so um, more successfully than a lot of books on the Atlantic Revolutions. And that's the way in which you talk about the United States and um, and its engagement um, with um, these uh, kind of newly established republics or these um, kind of aspirational um, republics. Um, it's very seamlessly kind of threaded in your account. And I was interested in how um, you know the United States um, government and and their political elite um, either encouraged or discouraged um, these rogue revolutionaries?
1: Uh, Thanks for saying that. Uh, I must say that I kind of struggled a bit with how the U.S. was going to fit into my narrative. Um, But um, I think it really helped when I started to think of the United States as almost part of my constellation of fleeting states, uh, that in the early 19th century, the USA was still a weak and tentative state whose survival was not guaranteed. Like, it's not the power it would become in the later 19th century with Spanish-American war. So it kind of helped me to put the USA back in its historical place, that it was a country that was also struggling to be recognised as a legitimate actor on the international scene. And I think that kind of, you know, is reflected in the ambiguous relationship with the, you know, uh, with the southern, uh, southern neighbours. Um, because, you know, the United States had freedom of the press, they also had trading in their uh, interest in the trading potential of, you know, um, of these uh, republics down south, and they also had sympathy for the Latin American independent cause, as, you know, Katyn Fitz in uh, her sister uh, republic's book has shown, the rogue revolutionaries had uh, quite tight connections with the US. It was a place of refuge where we could plan their next expeditions and sometimes we could support. Uh, merchants in particular were interested in supporting them um, since free trade was often part of his new political projects. Planters were also eager to buy enslaved Africans from them, um, especially since the US had officially at least ended the international slave trade. Um, and so local authorities were a bit more cautious, but again, for both economic and political reasons, they kind of tolerated them and turned a blind eye to their activities. At the national level, however, the U.S. government was kind of hostile to these firebrands Um, and the reactions to these projects show show kind of how the U.S. administration gradually drew a line between entities it recognized as legitimate and, uh, and the others. And the fact that these projects were very mobile, was kind of associated with piracy, contributing the slave trade band, they were arming people of African descent, they were giving them equal rights, even positions of authority, they were kind of up- upending racial hierarchy, it was very unsettling for the United States. And you know, this fear of another Haiti came back again and again, this kind of fear of another race war. Um, and they really saw the rogue revolutionary, especially on their borders, like in Florida. Um and Texas as having perverted the principles of the US revolution, right? It's like the we the people hashtag not all people, right? So until them, it's, it's a complicated process because until the mid 1820s, the, the United States has not recognized Latin American new countries. So there's really no consensus on, you know, um, on you know, kind of like is these new countries are legitimate or not. So they really have to make a case against rogue revolutionaries, especially. Um, with, with Michel Horry, uh, especially when we invade the Republic of the Floridas uh, that he had set up, uh, and then you know the US, can, uh, U.S. government really developed like developed a legal arsenal to give themselves a sense of resp- respectability and to try to control what was happening on their soil, because many European governments and their consuls, especially Spain, were complaining about this inability of the U.S. to control the people within. Uh, even outside of their borders, they really accuse them almost of being a failed state. They accuse them of being a weak state. Um, and I uh, detail in the book how the U.S. reacted to another revolutionary expedition in 1822 that targeted Puerto Rico, not only to conduct military operations at the border, like they did when they took over Florida a few years before, but really decide to venture in, um, into extraterrestrial waters, into the Caribbean uh, with the West Indian squadron to fight piracy. It was really one where it tried to show a bit of muscle. Uh, and however, thing, things did not go smoothly. There's a lot of issue around the right of the US Navy to intervene on other countries' ships, uh, on other countries' soils. And other governments were you know, also worried about these revolutionary expeditions. And they were really afraid that they would destabilize the regions. So the regions they were worried about the US throwing themselves into the mix. Again, the fear of a, another Haiti. Uh, was mentioned. And so you kind of see by you know, 1825 that the U.S. government, the U.S. Uh, and European governments began to recognize the independent states in Latin America. Uh, France and Britain also finally recognized uh, Haiti sovereignty and France demanding a huge indemnity payment in return. The U.S. refused. Like they just do not want to recognize Haiti, but they do recognize the independent states in Latin America. So it's really the sorting out moment Um, to legitimize and consolidate political identities that they felt was unmoored by the age of revolution. It's really this reconfiguration that, you know, um, that, you know, basically the US, you know, extend recognition to the Latin American republics. And the Latin American republics in return are also very careful to now dissociate themselves even further with these rogue revolutionaries. So it's really, this really, like when I mentioned, this sorting out moment that you see, but the US was just one actor among many others.
0: Vanessa, if, if we could, um, I'd love to talk a little bit about the methodological approach um, that you took, which you mentioned at the start of our conversation. And clearly, this is a transnational project. I mean, you're using multiple um, language sources, um, English and non-English sources. Um, how did you manage to write a book that crosses this linguistic boundary of the Caribbean, which for our, our listeners, um, this has been a, a perpetual concern for Caribbean scholars that they can write a more um, cohesive account of the region, keeping these um, linguistic barriers in mind? Um,
1: With difficulty, I have to say. Uh, It was a uh, struggle. And I think because um, I adopted this human lens, you know, really, you know, uh, following people, I think it really did I hope, helped me make a more you know, uh, cohesive narrative, but I really struggle with, you know, for me, was how much background information on each place that these in- individuals interacted with should I provide to the readers? Um, so in terms of the narrative, I think I was okay trying to almost you know, tie everything together but you know, in terms of background information, like how much people know about you know um, about Venezuela, how much do they know about Haiti, how do many much about the early republic in the US, that was really difficult for me to, you know, uh, to engage and to you know to realize. Um so I hope I did a good job with that. But really, like I think it's one of the main challenges in doing transnational history is not only provide a coherent narrative, but also make it appealing to people who have different specialties. Um but Again, because I was trying to trace this network of revolutionaries who constantly moved from one place to another, because I wanted to put the margins at the center of my story, I had to cross these linguistic boundaries. Like it, was, you know, it, it was part of a project at the time, um, at, from the start. Um, some places I studied in the book were surprising, like you no know, revolutionaries who would just pop up in one location I didn't expect, for example, St. Bartholomew. Uh, or Curaçao, and I was, okay, well, then <laughs> let me see what I can find. Um, and so I visited archives in the US, Mexico, Colombia, England, France, and Spain. I also do, use digital resources a lot, um, especially even Danish national archives that are online uh, at sources in Italian. Um, and if anyone is interested, I put together a guide to the archives I looked at, especially those with digital resources on my website, and as well as copies of some of the sources uh, I used in the book. Um, so when I showed up in the archives, I had some names and some dates, but I was a bit of a fishing expedition. Um, and I have to say a few words about doing kind of like transnational multilingual uh, research. Uh, the first, I was pre-COVID. Um, so things um, are going to be very different from now on. in of so safety. Um, we have uh, researchers on safety and working in the archives and traveling. Uh, secondly, I received funding this book would simply not exist with financial resources. We, this kind of research takes time. Um, and also what really helped was that I was using state archives, like the National Archives of Colombia, France, and England are extremely well organized with extremely well-trained and professional archivists and staff. So it's really easy to do research in these places. Um, you can take photos. You can access everything. Um, so I said like it was relatively easy for me it took time, but it was easy. And last but not least, I also have a privilege on my passport um you know, really you know um, you know, this, you know yeah passport privilege to cross to myself cross these you know um, these borders. Um, and one piece of advice I would have is really to follow one's interest in one topic. Uh, and transnational and multilegal project might not work for everyone. and I think localized, Studies can reveal so many hidden and significant stories, and for me, because I have interest in mobility and migration, it kind of makes sense. But it's not the only way, of course, and especially that now that things are becoming even harder in academia with budget cuts, uh, precarious employment, COVID. Um, and everything that's going to entail, like it's okay, I think, to rethink one dissertation topic or one book project accordingly. Like there are many stories out there that need to be told. Like I said, for me, it kind of made sense and it was the way I went into it right from the start. But but I think really localized and regional studies really are incredibly valuable. And for me, like this project that takes this kind of like global approach would not have been possible without the historians and scholars I had done these very localized studies and kind of help me ground and get a sense of, you know, um, of each regional environments and context.
0: Well, that leads me to ask, you know, what are you working on? Do you have a current project or is there a project that you're eager to um, pursue in the future?
1: Um, yes. So um, again, it might change with you know kind of what is happening at the time. Uh, but continuing my interest in mobility and migration in the Caribbean, I have a forthcoming article uh, on another place in the Greater Caribbean about Belize, and how the flow of refugees from Yucatan, Mexico during the caste War led um, to changes in you know uh, and Belize kind of like refugee crisis that was tied to broader Atlantic questions around Islam, law and empire. Um, and it's kind of part of a broader project on the regu- regulation of international travel in the North Atlantic world. Um, think probably going to focus on France and the US and how freedom of movement became a testing ground for ideas around nationality, race, and gender, and um, and really also the the concept of diplomatic rep- uh, diplomatic protection that I'm really interested in, like who gets to be protected by consuls and diplomatic agents and who is not. Um, and so um, yes, it's kind of like you no know, controlling of mobility, but also the protection that people you know uh, got when they cross borders and the right to return, and all these you know, um, these questions. Um, and I also have another project on a Black British history in the northeast of England, which is not a region we often, often, uh, we often associate with migrants from West Indies and West Africa, but actually the regions that reach history of migration and anti-racism and pan-African uh, activism. Um, so, yeah, so if people are interesting, uh, also, again, have a look at my website. Uh, we got link to this project, which is called Path uh, Across Waters, where I also put some documents and essays. So this is more, I'm venturing into a new time period, which is more like, you know, uh, late 19th and 20th century, um, before, you know, uh, before the, you know, what we call the Windrush generation before World War II. So it's really the time period I'm looking at. But again, it's again around the same questions about migration, identity, and you know, um, and mobility.
0: Vanessa, I want to thank you for coming on New Books Network.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me, it was fun.
0: (laughs) It was fun. You can find a link to Rogue Revolutionaries, The Fight for Legitimacy in the Greater Caribbean, and also uh, a link to Vanessa's um, webpage, which will contain her um, articles and the digital sources that she used for the book um, on our New Books Network webpage. Until next time.